for. Thank the choir for wonderful, wonderful songs of praise and worship, reminding us that God is always near and that his name always deserves to be glorified. We are going to read verses 1 through 7. In the sermon, I will note verses 8 through 12. But then we're going to go to chapter 5 and read verses 22 through 24. So that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 of chapter 4 verses 1 through 7 chapter 5 verse 22 through 24 and the precious magnificent holy inerrant sufficient word of God reads Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. If you'll be so kind to turn to chapter 5, verse 22, and through verse 24, in the precious, magnificent word of God reads, abstain from all or from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and will surely do it. Gracious Father, I pray at this time that your word will go forth from my lips for your glory and for your glory alone. I would not seek to please man, but to please you. Pray that you would give me the mind and the strength to preach what you have already inspired, knowing that I cannot improve it, knowing that your word is already enough. It is your word that is a double-edged sword. And I thank you for using me, a broken and sinful but yet repentant person, a person who does not deserve to stand before your people, whom you redeemed by your blood, and proclaim such riches of grace and mercy. Pray for that person now who is struggling in their walk with you, who is doubting their salvation. I pray, Father, that you would give them grace to hear these words and to be encouraged for your namesake. I pray for that Christian who's been on this walk for a long time and who thinks that they have already arrived and that they have nothing to learn, that you would be so gracious as to touch their hearts and allow them to see your glory. I pray for that person who is lost, that even through the foolishness of preaching, that you may draw their hearts to you for your glory. I thank you for this, your people, and I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Amen. Thank God for each of you under the sound of my voice, and I praise God for Minister, Reverend, Pastor Fluellen, who is in the house. Amen visiting with us uh, today. He is a wonderful, wonderful example of a faithful man of God who has 
labored and labored for many years as a pastor and as a minister of the gospel. Let us honor him by giving him a round of applause. Amen. <laughs> Reverend, if you could just wave your hands and let everyone know that you're here. Amen. <laughs> Praise God for you, my brother. And to each of these five ministers behind me and to each of you, God's precious people, uh, I believe that at some point, every Christian wants to know or ask the question to God, Lord, what is your will for my life? What is your purpose for my life? Why am I still breathing? Why did my trial or my tribulation, why did my past not consume me? Why am I still alive? Why am I still standing? Quite frankly, God, what do you want from me? question I believe that burns on the heart of every believer at some point in time. And Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians in verse 3, I believe, gives us the answer to that question. That we no longer have to worry about why God has called us or saved us or allowed us to be in Christ. Look at verse 3, and it starts off and it says these words, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And as I said that, I can just hear someone gasping for breath, thinking to themselves, Oh man, that's not what I wanted to hear. I was expecting to look at this text and for it to have a personal address to me, for it to personally say, Jerry, this is my will for you. This is what I want you to do for the rest of your life. Because we want specifics. We want to know many times where exactly God wants us to be. But you know, I found out that God does not think like we think. And many times he does not work like we work. We want to see everything up front. But God is the type of God that demands us to follow him by faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please him. So the secret things belong to the Lord except for the things in which he has revealed. And quite frankly, I'm glad that God does not give us a, a personal letter to tell us exactly what he wants to do in our lives, specifically, a specific task. I'm glad. How many of you like going to the movie theater? And, and as you go to the movie theater and buy or purchase your ticket, how many of you look forward? to someone walking out of the movie that you just went to see and coming up to you and telling you the end of the movie. Nobody. Because you have an anticipation. You anticipate that the movie is going to be good and that the ending is going to be great. Well, it's the same way with God. We don't know the exact details of our lives and exactly the task that God has before us, but what we can rest in is in the fact that the Bible says that God satisfies us with good, that God is a good God, and that the ending of this movie called Life is a great ending. An ending that we can look forward to. An ending that has us before the presence of a sovereign God without a tear in our eyes for pain or mourning. But you know, some of us gasp for air after we read that verse simply because it just dropped a 14-letter word on you. Paul said, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And we're thinking, now he could have broken that down a little bit, couldn't he? Sanctification is a, a big word 
that has a, a great meaning. But it is not something in which we should be intimidated about. The word sanctification is derived in, in English from the word sanctify. And in Greek, the word sanctify is pronounced uh, agiazo, which is similar to the word agios, which means holy. To sanctify simply means to set apart, to be distinct, to not be common. We serve a holy God. A God that is set apart, a God that is not common, a God that is distinct, a God that is great, a God that is separated from this world, a God who cannot be compared to anything else. He is inexhaustible in his knowledge and his, his greatness confounds even those who consider themselves to be wise. God is holy and a holy God a God that is set apart from everything and everyone else and who cannot be compared to everyone else or anything therefore must associate only with things that are holy and in order to associate with things that are holy, he has to first set them apart. God is holy. His very name is holy. That's why he told Israel that my name shall not be profaned, for I am a holy God. Hallow be thy name. Holy is your name. The very name of God is holy. It's to be separated because his name represents his character. The name of God in itself tells us that God is a God by himself, that he is perfect. That he is perfect. Anything that is associated with God, must be sanctified. In the Old Testament, and we, as we read in the account of Genesis, God sometimes sanctifies days, sanctifies specific times. We see him sanctifying or setting apart the Sabbath day and pronouncing it as holy. We see God working with Israel and telling them that there are certain years that are to be sanctified that they are to have a year of jubilee. And this, this year, this whole year was to be set apart for the purpose of pleasing God. And then Israel had festivals which were to be set apart for God. Times of great celebration in which they were to Focus their attention on this holy God who called them out of Egypt. Not only is his name sanctified, not only did he sanctify time, but the Bible tells us that God sanctified lands. There were specific lands that were going to be sanctified, and those lands were sanctified or set apart by God because his people were going to dwell therein. So in Exodus chapter 15, verse 13, we see God sanctifying the land of Canaan, telling Israel that this land that they are getting ready to possess is going to be set apart for his purpose. Jerusalem was going to be set apart for his purpose, which means that that land was to be a holy land, a land where profane worship was not to take place and sin was to be limited, not only does God sanctify his name or set apart his name? Not only does he set apart land, not only does he set apart time, but he set apart places within the land. The tabernacle was sanctified. The tabernacle was a place where his people could come and worship him, and it had specific rules to keep it holy, and the, the temple was sanctified. Because God is a agios God, a holy God that only associates himself with sanctified and holy things. Gifts were sanctified. 
Israel was expected to set apart specific gifts for God. Their firstborn males were set apart for the use of God. Their firstborn flock was set apart for the use of God. Their priests were sanctified or set apart from the common person. Their prophets were set apart, called by God, sprinkled with blood, and applied holy oil to their bodies. Because God is a holy God. Isaiah chapter 6, we see Isaiah seeing a vision. And he sees a holy God. And the seraphim, which are used to seeing God, sees God in his glory just as Isaiah does. And they respond, holy, holy, holy. Agias, agias, agias. Glory to the Lord of hosts. God has not only sanctified his name, not only sanctified his land, not only sanctified specific places, not only sanctified priests, not only sanctified specific gifts, like our offering, that 10% that is to be set apart for him, but God has sanctified you. And God has sanctified me. He has called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. He has set us apart to be distinct from the common person in the world. He has called us to be specially used by his hands. And what a glorious thought that is to be used by the precious hands of God himself, the potter who made us. He sets us apart from that which is common and he says, you are sanctified. Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 10 tells us the reason that we are sanctified is because of Jesus Christ. It says that a it says that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. When we look to Christ in faith, God sets us apart. When we look to Christ's life, his sinless life, born of the Virgin Mary, when we look to his death, the death that he did not deserve but willingly took on our behalf, when we look at his resurrection, a resurrection that came as a result of the power of God, and when we look at his ascension in faith, God sets us apart. We know sanctification is... An act, distinct act that happens, it is also a progressive act that is happening. When we look at this 14-letter word, this 14-letter word has a lot of rich meaning. Sanctification is the progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from our sins. And like Christ in our actual lives. If you want to know the will of God, the will of God is found in sanctification. Sanctification, as just was defined, I will have a pen and I will write that down. Sanctification is, the will of God is for your life. The progressive work of God and man that makes us look more and more like Christ in our actual lives lives. So what is the will of God for you? The will of God for you is to have you to look like his son. My point is, is that as we walk with God, we should seek to please God more and more. And God enables us to please him more and more. The first point that I want to make about this text is this, is that sanctification or the Christian life, it is a process. It is a process. Paul here is writing to the church at Thessalonica, which is modern-day Salonica. And Paul went to this city, and we read about this in Acts chapter 17, verse 1 through 9, and went into the city, which was uh, a, a sinful city, and preached the gospel in the synagogues. And the Bible says that he literally turned this city upside down and was forced to leave and go to another city, but a church was planted there. And Paul is writing to this church and, and he's letting them know overall that he is pleased with them. He is encouraged to hear the testimony of Timothy. 
Timothy went and gave Paul a report and said, this is what's happening to that city that you shared the gospel in, that we worked in. This is what's happening to the church there. And Paul is pleased with this church. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Paul is telling the church that he is praying for them. And he says these words, chapter 1, verse 3, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This church was exemplary in their faith. This church was exemplary in their love. This church was exemplary in the fact that they were steadfast and they stayed steadfast in their hope in Christ. And then in verse 4, we see that Paul even brags on them more and he's happy about the fact that they understand that they've been chosen by God and that they have accepted or received the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, Paul is bragging on them some more and he's saying, listen, I heard that the gospel is spreading. I heard that things are, are going forth. He says that the gospel is sounding forth from you. Paul is excited that not only have they received the word of God, but that they are speaking the word of God. That the surrounding cities are hearing about the testimony of their faithfulness. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful thing for a church to have a good testimony outside of the church. You know, some churches just got a good testimony within the church. They tell each other about how great their church is. But, but it's a good thing to have a good testimony outside of the church. It's a good thing to have people in the barber shops and in the, the, the hair salons and in the, in the nail shops talking about your church and the faithfulness of its members and the, the purity of its, its ministers and the, the power of its deacons and the voice of its choir and the integrity of its youth. Paul is saying, I am proud of you, but in chapter 1, verse 14 and 16, he says, I'm, I'm proud of you, not just because you received the gospel, not because you spoke the gospel and people are speaking of you. I'm proud of you because you are suffering for the gospel. This church was about it. They had a good thing going on. They loved the Lord. And yet we see in verse 1 of chapter 4 that Paul still challenges them. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Paul is saying, I am glad, I am proud that you are doing what you're doing. And I can agree with Paul in this. I am proud of Forest Baptist Church. I am proud of what God has done in our hearts and how God has us on a path to glorify him and to push back the realm of darkness. But Paul says, I want to see you do it more and more and he says because this is the will of God for your life that you be sanctified that you progress that you realize that salvation is a process and that it's a, a growing process that is a, a process of going higher and higher in the Lord. It's a, a process of going from glory to glory. It's not a, a place in which we say, I have arrived. I still remember the look on the college student's face. As they stood outside of Wales Hall, which was a popular hall, lecture hall at Michigan State University. I still remember the look of disgust on their face as a preacher known as the Wales Hall preacher began to harass the people who walked by into the hall shouting things at them like, hey you over there with a, with a baseball hat, 
with your baggy jeans on and your baggy shirt on. I just want to tell you that you're going to hell and I just know you're going to hell just by the way you look. I remember him looking at people who he suspected to be homosexuals and, and calling them out and saying, God hates you, you're going to burn in hell. He looked at people and harassed people, even people that I knew that were in Christ told me that they were walking to class and one day he called them out, he looked at them, he judged them, he damned them, and there was no grace. And this disgusted me. It disgusted me for a number of different reasons. Number one, he got mad publicity. He became the talk of the college. In fact, they did a newspaper uh, article on him, the Wells Hall preacher. And many people began to look at the Bible studies that were on campus and saw us all as the same who were not Christians. That's just how Christians are. But what made it even worse is, is the answer that he would give to people when they would ask him why he's doing what he's doing. And he told many people that he can preach this way and he can talk to them this way because he was perfect. He told one student of mine, he says, I haven't sinned in years. And the only one who can preach a message like that is the person who is sinless. <laughs> this cat was faking himself out. For there is no such thing as perfection on this side of heaven. And people are disillusioned if they believe that they are perfect or have obtained a perfection. And we do ourselves a disjustice if we are hard on ourselves and, and, and coming down on ourselves daily because of our imperfections. We are an imperfect people. We are sinners, but repentant sinners. John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 10 says these words. If we say we have no sin, we deceive, our, deceive ourselves and the truth is not within us. A person who walks around saying that they are perfect or acting like they're perfect or talking down to people as if they are perfect. You know, we do have people like that. I've been in church for 20 years. Let me tell you some young buck about Jesus. Salvation is not about how long you've been in. Is how obedient have you been since you've been in? I know some 80 and 90 year old people who I believe who are saved but who I would not trust to give advice to a young person. And I know some young people who I want to say go and talk to this person who's 80 or 90 years old. Well pastor you will understand when you get older. You understand why I'm not obeying the word of God when you get older? It's a good thing to recognize our own imperfection and sin. I love the way Job responded in Job chapter 42, verses 5 through 6. Listen to Job's word. He says, I had heard of you. Speaking about God, you know, he just went through this trial. He's sitting in his ashes and he talks about God. He said, yeah, yeah, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but, but now my eyes have seen you. He said, God, I heard people talk about you. I talked about you. I prayed to you, but and I heard about you. But listen to how he continues to, to go on. He says, therefore, I despise myself and repent in the dust and in the ashes. Job, who is described as a man who is blameless and who fears the Lord, once he had truly experienced God and learned about God, came to a place and said, now that I have seen you, I have seen myself, and I repent in dust and I repent in ashes. A person who understands their own sinfulness, a person who understands what's really going on in their heart is not going to be a person who is pride and who is preaching to others 
others as if they are perfect, but they are going to be a person who says, listen, I see the glory of God. I see the holiness of God in the scripture and I fall short daily. And all I can tell you, baby, is just keep working, keep growing, keep progressing and know that when you sin, you have an advocate in Christ Jesus. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Great men and great women of God are those who recognize their own sinfulness, who recognize their own imperfections, but who desire to grow more and more. David, a man after God's own heart, is constantly repenting through the Psalms. Moses constantly repented in the law. David, Paul, said that I am the chief among all sinners. Great men and great women of God are those who understand that they are sinners, but repentant sinners who have an advocate in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I desire that you grow more and more. I want to speak to you a quote. And as you listen to this quote, I want you to ask the question, is this quote coming from a mature Christian or a immature Christian? Is this quote coming from someone who walks with God daily or someone who takes the grace of God for granted? Listen to this quote. It says that there may be persons who can glide along like a tram car on rails without a solitary jerk. But I find that I have a vile nature to contend with and spiritual life is a struggle for me. To fight from day to day with inbred corruption, coldness, deadness, barrenness, and if it were not for my Lord Jesus Christ, my heart would be as dry as the heart of the damned. Who do you think this quote came from? Did this quote come from someone who barely knows Christ? Or did this quote come from someone who really knows Christ? This quote came from someone who really knows Christ. In fact, it came from C.H. Spurgeon, a famous pastor theologian who is still being preached and read in pulpits across America. In fact, I would bet that no day has gone by since his death in which he was not quoted by someone. Great men and women of God are people who see that they still have to grow. They see that sanctification is the will of God, that God cares about us growing, that God does not want us to stay in the same place forever, that God wants us to go from glory to glory, to continue to learn about him and to never, never, Never be arrogant about where we are with our walk with him. I like the fact that Paul says this, that his desire is that we please God. And that should be our desires. That should be our prayer daily. Lord, help me to please you. That should be in our mind every morning when we wake up. Father, give me the grace today to please you. And sometimes that's difficult. Because before we come to Christ, we have been accustomed to living life to please ourselves. We lived life to receive gratification and pleasure for ourselves. Many of us, before we came to Christ, if we keep it real, life was like that Beyonce song. It's about me. Minds and I, something like that. We was telling everybody to the left and to the left. We live life to gratify ourselves. Now, when we become saved, we then go through a process in which we learn to not please ourselves. And we also learn not to please man first. 
Paul understood that if he was to please God, that he could not seek to please himself first, and he could not seek to please men first. He understood that if he was to please God, he must seek to please God first. Who do we seek to please? At the end of the day, when we lay our heads down on the pillow, do we receive joy and gratification? out of knowing that our boyfriend or girlfriend was pleased, that our friends are pleased, that our children are pleased, that our wife are pleased, women, that your husband is pleased, or, or do we receive joy and peace by knowing that we did our best that day to please God? Exactly what Paul said in the second chapter in the fourth verse. He says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God. Why, Paul? To please God who tests our hearts. Paul understood that at the end of the day, who we are accountable to is not the people who see our outward appearance, but we are accountable to the person who sees our hearts. And one day we will stand before a throne before God and before Christ, the Lamb, who will have eyes that burn like a flaming fire. And Christ will not ask, did you please your wife first? Did you please your children first? Did you please your pastor first? He will ask, did you please me? Did you seek to walk with me? Did you seek to commune with me? Did you seek my face? Seek my face. But why should we please God? Why obey God? You know, I had a boss my freshman year of college who gave me a job that I probably really shouldn't have gotten. Uh, I was a supervisor of the intramural building on campus. That's where people came to work out. And I remember walking in the office. My mother came with me, and uh, he told me that really the reason why you got the job was because of your mother, because she was so sincere about getting you a job. <laughs> and and she, she walked in and said, my son will be going to school here in the next month, and he really needs a job. If you could, sir, uh, we would really appreciate you, you giving him a job. And my father said, yes, sir, we would appreciate it. And before I knew her, I was hired. And, and you know, he gave me a job to really manage a building. And part of the job was, was that on certain days I would have to get up at like 5 o'clock and be at the job at 6 a.m. to open the doors, turn on the lights, turn on the register, and make sure everything was set up. All right. I'm just coming out of high school. I can count on one hand how many times I ever had to get up at 5 a.m., let alone get up and start. A, a business <laughs> day. First time, I got, woke up, I made it there, barely in the nick of time. It was a small line work, and I got there right at about 5.55. I wasn't there 15 minutes early. The second time, I overslept. Woke up at 6.15, ran down there. The line was across. People was out there working out. A guy walked and said, man, you, you know, I, I'm on a time crunch here. I'm trying to get a quick workout before work. And lo and behold, my boss found out because his boss called me. He called me into the office. I just knew that it was it. And he said, son, I'm proud of you. You've been doing a really good job. He said, but you know, you, you have to work on being on time. <laughs> if you can't do 6 a.m., let me know, and I'll put somebody else there until you can. I told him, I said, Mr. Mayor, I can't do 6 a.m. He gave me grace. He didn't fire me. He allowed me to switch shifts. And over the years, he gave me more and more responsibility. And as a result of the grace that he gave me, I worked hard to please him. Because I knew that every day that I walked through those doors was a gift because I deserved to be fired and to be unemployed. Why do we seek to please God and not man? Because God has given us grace. Because we should be dead. Because we should be confused. 
Because many of us should have lost our minds and given up. Because we should be condemned as sinners to hell. But God being rich in mercy poured out his grace on us. Therefore, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord your God, which is your what? <laughs> your reasonable service. We should have been fired. But God keeps us employed. Second thing that Paul points out in this passage is that not only is the Christian walk a process of growing more and more to please God, but the Christian walk of sanctification, it is a personal war against sin. It is a personal war against sin. When we become Christians, we say to God, because of your grace, because of your mercies, I am going to war. The Christian walk is not a playground. The Christian walk is a battleground. The Christian walk is a constant striving to execute our sin. The old man, that carnal flesh, that old nature that didn't just all up and move out, but just moved over. It's a commitment to fight sin. Listen to Paul's words. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. See that? Holiness. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger. In all these things, as we, are told, as we have told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregard not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love another for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge, that word urge in Greek comes from the same word that we get encouraged from. We urge you, we encourage you with passion, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own business, I mean affairs, and to work with your hands as we instruct you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent. On no one. To summarize this and tell you what Paul is saying, Paul is saying that we must wage war against our own sinfulness. Our primary battle in the Christian walk is against ourself, it's against our flesh, it's against that old man, those old desires, those old ways, that, those old passions. It's, it's against that, that pride that, that has been in our hearts for, for a, a long time. It's against that temptation to, to look at pornography. It's against those, those white lies that, that easily destroy our hearts and makes our hearts cold towards God. It's against those dirty jokes that we enjoy so much. It's against that, that gossiping for the, for the sake of praying for someone. You know how that is, girl. I'm, I'm praying for you. How can I be praying for you? Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What? Uh-huh. What about sister so-and-so? You hear anything about her? Uh-huh. Oh, that's a shame. Okay, I'll talk to you later. I thought we was going to pray, girl. I got to go to the grocery store. Against the temptation to gossip and slander. We must see this sin as a problem. Paul deals here with their sinfulness. He, he deals here with a problem that they're having, and that, that problem is a, is a, a problem of, of sexual purity. And he tells them that each one of you, you have to learn to control your own body and holiness and, and honor. And even in this, some theologian says that he's really talking to, to married couples, saying that you need to learn to, to control your passage towards the, the other person, for the two have become one flesh, that you need to learn to channel your sexual 
sexual desires only for your wife, your eyes only for your wife, your eyes only for your husband. He's saying that you need to keep your bodies pure. Why is our body so important? Why does he spend so much time here talking about sexual purity? Because he knows that, that God bought our bodies, that our bodies no longer belong to us, that we were redeemed, we were bought, we were ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and that our temple is no longer our own temple but our temple is God's and just as I told you before in the beginning of the sermon about to sanctify something which means to set it apart when God sanctifies us he sets us apart and for those who are not married he he sets us apart our bodies apart for our future husbands or wives and God forbid if if you desire to get married and for some reason you end up not getting ready he he sets your body apart for him for him we are not our own for we have been brought with a price and Paul uses some interesting language often when he talks about how we are to, to battle, how we are to fight against sexual impurity. Paul here tells us that we ought to abstain from it. I like the verbs that he used, abstain from it. He tells Timothy that we must flee it. He tells those in Rome that we must mortify the deeds of our body, which means to put to death the deeds of our body. And Paul is using his language to let us know to abstain, to flee, to mortify, that it takes work. And that's something that we don't like to talk about. Sanctification is work. You know, we come in here every Sunday and we stand and we sing these rich hymns and these great songs. How sweet it is to trust in Jesus just to obey him at his word. And we put a smile on our face and we're thinking to myself, I'm so glad that there's not a, drumbo, a jumbotron with what is going on in my mind plastered on it as I sing this song. I'm so glad that God is not allowing our brothers and sisters in Christ to know what I really think. Yes, it's sweet to trust in Jesus, but my God, my God, sometimes I want to say, why has thou forsaken me? Because we have passions and desires and a, a carnal flesh that is constantly at war with the spirit. And it's sometimes hard work to get that old flesh that thought that desire away Paul said there's a wrestle there is a war on the inside of me when I want to do right evil is ever beside me Paul doesn't use cute language when he talks about fighting against sin he uses hard language mortify kill the deeds of the flesh sacrifice your body presented as a living sacrifice. A, a sacrifice hurts. A sacrifice is painful. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice and not just as a sacrifice, but to be alive while you're being sacrificed. But it is the work of every Christian to fight, to war, to mortify, to abstain, and to flee. To flee. The reason why we have to flee is because of our sin. Almost done because of our sin. Our sin in the sight of God is horrible. Our sin in God's sight is disgusting. One theologian who was a famous Puritan named John Bunyan, he says this sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. God hates sin. And even though we will constantly sin, we should never become comfortable or befriend our sin. We know that God hates sin because we see how God executes justice against sin throughout the Bible. 
Every now and then, God shows Israel exactly how he feels against sin. Achan, you want to take something that I told you not to take and bury it? This is what's going to happen to you. Sir, you want to touch the Ark of the Covenant as it falls and as it's about to hit the ground because you see it's sacred as David and the rest of them march into the city. When I told you not to touch it, even told others not to look at it, I, when I say something, I mean it. I'll execute you. So you want to lie to the Holy Spirit, huh? Acts chapter 7. You want, you want to lie to the Holy Spirit and say that you're giving something that you're really not giving. Here's a heart attack for you because I hate sin. God hates sin. And every now and then he shows us throughout the scripture exactly how much he hates sins as he acts in a way of justice to show people that I am a holy God and I am serious about my word. But as Christians, we don't walk around fearing the fact that God is going to strike us dead necessarily because we have been justified. By faith through Christ Jesus means that we understand that we have peace with God. But even though we have peace with God, we should not have peace with our sin. We should still war against our sin and fight against our sin. Shaquille O'Neal is a horrible free throw shooter. Have you ever seen him shoot a free throw? Career, he hits half his shots. Sometimes I wonder how just basketball and players in general that play professionally every day are satisfied with hitting half their shots. Like you play ball every day. Your percentage could be a little better. I'm sorry. But Shaq shoots 50% from the free throw line. If that, sometimes it's been way worse. But once I heard in an interview as the Lakers coach Phil Jackson was talking about his horrible free throw shooting, he said, yes, Shaq shoots horrible, but Shaq works harder than anybody on this team at free throws. Even though he is a horrible free throw shooter, he is not content with his free throw percentage. And for all of these years, he is constantly working on free throws. And it's the same way with our sin. We all have struggles, we all have battles, but we should not be comfortable with those struggles and with those battles. When we fall, we should not just say, well, this is my area and I'm just going to be this way. We should say, I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to work harder at it. Lord, forgive me. Don't become comfortable with your sin. A little bit of sin is a big deal to God. Remember, when I was in college, I was invited by the Phi Beta Sigma fraternity to sit on a panel for open conversations with, with high school boys. And uh, it, they invited me to this high school, and it was televised, and it was different people from different uh, professions and walks of life on a panel. And I was to represent uh, the, the, the ministers and pastors in the community, and the boys got to ask any question that they wanted to. And there was a, a, a particular boy who asked a question. He said, you, the one who's a minister, I said, yes, sir. He says, I have a question for you. He said, why is God and people who preach so strict against sin? I said, well, what sin? He was like, well, sex. Why can't we have sex out of marriage if we're Christian? He was like, all, we, all I really want is, is a little bit, <laughs> a little pleasure, just a little bit. Why can't I just have a, a little? For y'all who cover your kids, ears as I preach please do the same as they watch BET when they go home he asked this question everybody started laughing because at the time there was a song by 50 cent out called a little bit all I want is a little bit something like that and everybody just starts rolling and I said what's your favorite ice cream he told me his favorite ice cream I said, well, how, after this, I'm going to go and I'm going to get you your favorite ice cream. But I'm going to open this tub, this gallon of ice cream, and I'm going to walk around and try to scrape up bird droppings and place it in the ice cream and mix it up. I said, it won't be a lot. It's just going to be a little bit. <laughs> and he looked and said, I said, well, would you want that ice cream? He said, no, I wouldn't want that ice cream. 
I said, why would you not want that ice cream? It's just a little bit of bird drop. It's not a whole lot. I said, all you want is a little bit. A little bit of sand. It grows and grows and grows. And our hearts become cold and cold and cold. Paul said, do not ignore the Holy Spirit. Do not ignore it. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to us. God has given us a precious gift in his Holy Spirit, and he does not want us to vex it, ignore it, or grieve it to take it for lightly. Last point, and we're through, and this is the, the shorter of the, the points, is this third point. Sanctification is the work of God. Sanctification is the work of God. So we said that it's a process. As we progress and grow in him more and more, it is a personal war against sin because God hates sin and he has called us, sanctified us to be separate from those who live in sin. But finally, sanctification, it is the work of God and that is good news. That even more so than me fighting, it's what God is committed to do in me. That God is the one who gives us the power and the strength to look more and more like Christ. It's exactly what Paul says as he is giving this benediction in verse 22 of chapter 5 now. May the God of peace himself sanctify you. May he set you apart completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Sanctification is a partnership. We partner with God in looking more like Christ. And that is God's will for your life and for my life, that we will look more like Christ, that we will be conformed unto the image of Christ. Paul says these words to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 8, verse 13, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see that mixture, that partnership? He says, if by the Spirit. It is the Spirit that allows us to put to death the, the deeds of the body. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's a, it's a partnership that God is working in you through his Holy Spirit. He's making your heart sensitive against the sins that you used to enjoy. You used to enjoy rolling that blunt and getting high and looking like duh and, and laughing at stop signs or whatever. And now God has taken that taste from your mouth. Uh, getting high is no longer the, the pleasure that you look for, but it's seeking his face. You used to enjoy talking dirty with the boys or, or talking crazy with the girls, but now your ears have become sensitive. The more you read God's word, the more you hear the preached word, the more you grow in faith. And now those conversations which used to be fun is now disgusting. You used to love to be drunk, and now you know that soberness is a virtue. So when you go out with your friends to a restaurant, you're careful about what you drink. It's you doing something, but it's God doing something. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. He says, work out your salvation. Work it out. Exercise. Do what you need to do. But then he says this. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is a partnership. It is God working with you and you working with God. And how do we partner with God? We partner with God. Colossians chapter 3, 1. If then you have been raised with God, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not the things that are below. We partner with God by seeking God. And when we seek God, the Bible says if we seek him, we shall find him. He shows up and allows us to be found. He takes the draw from our hearts as the word goes forth. That word, that's a double-edged sword, piercing to divide. We partner with God by seeking, but not just by seeking, but by setting. Seek the things above, he says first, and then set your minds on the things that are above. 
by meditating on the word of God. Lord, if, I, if a young man wants purity, Psalms 119 verse 9 says that we should hide our, well, we should hide the word of God in our hearts. It's us setting, it's us seeking. And when we seek and when we set, something miraculous happens because the Holy Spirit works. Y'all know about seeking and setting because you do it every day with your alarm clock. You get ready to go to sleep, and depending on the time, you say, well, am I going to wake up at 6.45 or 6.55? Let me pause there. I never understand why people waste so much time deciding between 6.45 and 6.50. I mean, five minutes, really? Am I going to wake up 6.45, 6.50? 6.45, 6.50. We seek it. 6.45, 6.50. Then you're doing the thing. 6.45, 6 6.50. 6.49, 6.50. Okay, I, I seek. I, I've sought. And then we set the alarm clock for 6.50. Then the morning comes. The alarm goes off. Our body wakes up. We react. We're ready to go. Or most of us, we hit the snooze button five or six times. <laughs> Same way with God. We are to seek God. And when we get in that place and we're comfortable and we know that that's where God wants us, we set our mind on that scripture. And that scripture allows us to react in time of temptations. We are partnering with God. We are partnering with God. Paul concludes by saying this, he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. He will surely do it. Heard pastor from Zambia telling me the testimony of another pastor that he heard uh, in Zambia. The pastor was telling him that someone had broken into his house. He said that he, when his house got broken into, he picked up the phone and he called the police. He said, officer, someone is in my house. I need you guys to come quickly and, and rescue me. And he says, we, the officer says, we would love to come and help you. We would love to come and rescue you. There's one problem. We don't have enough cars tonight. So if you will come and pick us up, we will come and help you. I'm so glad that God's not that way. That when we call on God in our times of temptation, that he doesn't say, I would love to come and help you. But I don't have the strength. The Bible says that we serve a God who is awesome. We serve a God who can fix us. We serve a God who can rescue us from our sins. We serve a God who is faithful to deliver us during our times of tribulation. We serve a God who's committed to our sanctification, who's committed to our growth, who's committed to our progress. And he uses a various amount of people, places, and things to make sure that we grow. Sometimes he uses our kids. Yeah, kids are great sanctification agents. Sometimes he allows them to get on our last nerve in order that we would grow in patience. Sometimes he uses our beautiful and our wonderful spouses to do it. Sometimes he uses our jobs to do it. Sometimes he uses people and allows people to come in and out of our lives for seasons. And we don't understand why they came in and why they left. The Bible says that we know that all things work together for the good. He uses all of our experiences for his glory to make us to look more like him. If God wasn't involved in our sanctification, we would be in trouble. He is not a God who answers, I cannot help you. But he is a God who answers, I am here. There is no temptation that I cannot free you. Uh, the words of a hymn that I once heard and I, I like. It says, take time to be holy, speak often with thy Lord. Abide in me always and feed on his word. Make friends of God's creatures, help those who are weak, forgetting in nothing his blessings to seek. Take time to be holy, the world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus like him thou shalt be, thy friends and thy comfort his likeness shall see. Take time to be holy, let him be thy God, and run not before him whatever be tied. In joy or in sorrow still follow thy Lord, and looking to Jesus still trust 
in his word. Father, help us. Help us, Father, to continue to grow more and more. Don't allow us to be satisfied with where we are. Just give us a glimpse of the horror of our sin in your sight. In order that we, Father God, would worship you and praise you and live for you evermore. Help us, Father God, to be humble and to ask our wives and our husbands and our children about sin that may be noticeable in our lives. Help us, Father God, to, to give them permission to call out ongoing sin in order that we would look like you. Give us the humility to go to a brother and sister of Christ who we know are having areas of vic are, are victorious in our areas of weakness. Give us the, the courage and the humility to go to them and to ask them to pray for us and to ask them how they battle that sin. Please, God. Please, God. Help us as a church to satisfy you not to come into these walls to be entertained. Not to leave high off of emotions every week. But to leave with an attitude that says, this week I will fight. And pray for God's grace to help me fight every week. Help us to seek knowledge from your word. Christ's name, we pray. Amen.